Now, at the risk of, of um, embarrassing our guests, I want to just list his tremendous, Professor Thorsten Wagner's tremendous biography, and um, just to give you an idea or a feel for the scholarship that we are so privileged to be able to share today with, um, uh, with our speaker. Um, Professor Wagner is a scholar of German and Danish descent who's devoted his adult life to studying Jewish Germany, the Holocaust, and the Danish rescue of Jews during World War II. He's been an associate professor of modern European history at the Danish Institute for Study Abroad, which is affiliated with the University of Copenhagen, um, and has served as the academic director of FASP, that some of us who were here earlier today learned about, the fellowships at Auschwitz for the study of professional ethics, which is the forward-looking program that results, or that is a result of the scholarship that has taken place. He's taught at the Department of Scandinavian Studies in Hamburg, the University of Berlin, Jewish Museum of Berlin, research fellow at the Danish Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies. Professor Wagner has numerous academic publications in the field of modern German and European Jewish history, and uh, completed his undergraduate studies at the University of Tübingen in Germany, graduate studies at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and at the Technische Institut, Inst Universität Berlin and the Freie Universität Berlin. His postgraduate studies were at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Professor Wagner lives with his wife and two children in Copenhagen and Berlin. Please join me in welcoming Professor Thorsten Wagner. One morning, probably about one, one and a half years ago, one of the leading politicians of a relatively new political party in Germany called Alternative for Germany uh, wakes up, um, walks, I assume, to his kitchen window or to his balcony and looks out. Uh, him living in uh, some suburb of an East German city, I think it's in, outside of Dresden, and suddenly he sees something that he didn't notice the day before. What he sees is a um, set of 2030 concrete slabs built up on the neighboring um, piece of land next to his house. And uh, that's kind of a guerrilla project of a political uh, group of uh, artists that's called the Center for Political Beauty who do all kinds of uh, sometimes very provocative and uh, innovative artistic political projects. They simply built a replica, a smaller version of the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin outside the window of this right-wing politician uh, in Germany. And this guy had, um, in the months before, uh, had been, uh, had, had a certain kind of presence in the media because he again and again had criticized um, the uh, culture of shame um, and also the, the, the monument of, of shame that the Holocaust Memorial was supposed to represent and said we have to 
end this self-legulation that Germany is all about. We can start to again be proud to be Germans and to focus on the positive sides of German history and not always on all these dirty and dark sides of it. That is a new voice that we haven't heard this way five or ten years ago in the German public and now it is very present. It's very much there, but on the other hand, uh, it's still a clear uh, minority, uh, especially when it goes as far and as radical as this one politician. And he got the response, so to speak, by this uh, guerrilla group uh, of uh, activists that I described earlier. But what I'm going to talk to about tonight is uh, what has led to the fact that somebody like this right-wing politician of the AFD, that I'll get back to later, um, on the one hand sees it as a possibility to come up with that kind of a view, let's, positive on the, let's focus on the positive aspects of being German, but on the other hand we are so much in a different place in 2017 than where we were a generation or two ago. So I will talk about Germany and the processes that Germany has undergone in that uh, context and of course also towards the end uh, I want to compare and contrast with what we see in other countries and especially also Poland of course seems to be interesting in that context for all kinds of reasons. One is that uh, it has been very much in the media over the last couple of months because of the new anti-defamation law uh, that came out and of course also uh, because Ari Katz is planning uh, in a year from now um, a program, uh, a, a trip to uh, Poland and Lithuania. So it might also just make sense to uh, discuss that and to talk about that a little, a little bit more. Now in that context and when this kind of a politician suggests a different approach to German history, it of course has to do with this more general question and that is uh, what kind of part of German history do we choose to focus on? Right? Is it the romantic beauty uh, of earlier centuries? Is it Prussian history? Is it Bismarck? What are the fragments and references and narratives that people choose to focus on in terms of their historical uh, narrative? In the 20th century also, there's the history of the Cold War, there's Berlin, there's the, uh, the, wall, the wall and the coming down of the wall. So there are many uh, different possibilities, of course, for um, that access uh, to history and the question of how to deal with it. What we can see in the first uh, years after the war uh, is that for the first one, two generations um, after 1945, there's a strong tendency of what you could call a willful forgetfulness uh, regarding the crimes of Nazism uh, and more specifically the Holocaust. But that doesn't mean that history is absent. Can you Guess what kind of history actually was present? What are the stories that are told? If you try to put yourself into these kind of late 1940s, 1950s situation. That's true, but, and that's of course a typical explanation for why Hitler came to power, but that's not where I'm going necessarily. Right? I'm more talking about what are the images, and of course to a degree already there's photos I gave away, right? Uh, what are the images that will dominate the, uh, the, the discourse, right? The conversations and the awareness of Germans 
And before I call on you, I just want to say I will try to cover East and West Germany, but I have a very typical bias. So when I sometimes say Germany, I most likely mean West Germany. That's not nice, but that's just the way that, that many of us operate, right? So you should, you should just be aware of that for these topics, East and West, of course, are very, have very different experiences. Could it be Germans as victims? Mm -hmm. Victims of what? Victims of the war, victims of the Nazis, maybe even victims of the Nazis. Yes. Right. This idea uh, that the Nazis somehow were men from Mars coming down, taking over uh, Germany, um, the, the idea that uh, we as Germans uh, were brainwashed or were forced into um, subordination under this Nazi regime, uh, the experience of the war, the experience of the air raids, the experience, which by the way is a part of my family history, uh, of a uh, grandfather um, who not only, now I'm talking about my mother's father, who uh, ended up being caught by the Soviets uh, as their troops were withdrawing um, on the way uh, back from Russia. Uh, in 1945 and end up uh, being brought to a prisoner of war camp, first in Siberia and later outside of Moscow. And then for the first, next five years, he's in a POW camp, right? And of course, hundreds of thousands of German soldiers have that experience. So those are the stories that dominate very much for a long time. Is there also a uh, culture of um, feigned ignorance about what, what had taken place? People claiming we had no idea this was going on. Yes. it will become one of the most dominant narratives. We had no idea. Um, and that whole terminology, uh, I see an, saw another hand, but let me just quickly re respond to that. That whole terminology, of course, is so important and so problematic because the sentence itself doesn't make sense. In a conversation, you would always need to ask, what are we talking about? Right? Are you claiming that you didn't know that there were concentration camps established in spring of 1933 where thousands of enemies of the regime were brought to, were incarcerated. Uh, you didn't know the Jews were disenfranchised, that their citizenship was diminished to uh, status, status of residency, etc. That doesn't make sense. Everybody knew that. Right? The concentration camps were places where journalists and politicians would go to in the course of the 30s and you would have journals that would bring personal interest stories about how somebody visits a, a group of lawyers visit a concentration. So it was, of course that was known. But on the other hand, if the question would be, did you know that there was a death camp called Treblinka, which was very much in the eastern part of Poland, at least where the borders are today, uh, where close to a million European Jews were murdered, and then a German says, well, I didn't know that specific, she's probably right. Right? So that's why we didn't know as such is meaningless right? and opens up for that whole vagueness, so to speak. But I think there was also a counter narrative to that that was initiated by people like Karl Jaspers who wrote The Question of German Guilt and he said all Germans are guilty. Yeah. You know, that you can't use those type of... But when does Jaspers' book come out? 61, wasn't it? It's much actually, but we would need to look it up. It was not right after the war, but it was within the immediate Yes, and I think what is interesting, and it's a good point, that you're in an intellectual academic context for a couple of years, and I would argue particularly the first three, four, five years, 
after 45 have a certain willingness to face these facts. I would not say that's a mass phenomenon, but you have lighthouses, right, some important people uh, who start to discuss it. But very soon, actually, what I would argue is much more predominant is a broad notion in the West German population of saying, particularly allies, accuse us collectively of being guilty, which, by the way, was not true, right? I mean, we don't have much evidence of allies actually saying all Germans are guilty, right? But that is the notion. Germans feel oh, they tell us we're collectively guilty, and many Germans react by the assumption of collective innocence. I didn't do these things that they, they forced me to walk to these unearthed mass graves as I didn't pull the trigger, I am by definition innocent, right? So that's the mechanism that starts to work in that uh, particular uh, situation. So what kind of, yeah, one comment? Just uh, the stories were different in East and West Germany because East Germany said we fought the Nazis. And, and what they also will say uh, is, is that with the help of our Soviet liberators, um, we um, established a regime that actually brought the perpetrators to justice, which of course only at, at best is half true, right? Um, and that meant that all the Nazis would flee. So in the 50s and 60s, we in East Germany are in the wonderful situation that all the former Nazis have fled to West Germany where they now, not so surprisingly, are deeply infiltrating uh, the Bonn government, in other words, the West German administration, while we here build the good Germany. We build the Germany of the, um, the peasants uh, and, and uh, soldiers, right? this kind of new uh, German state that is democratic, that is socialist, uh, that is anti-fascist by definition, um, and our founding myth is the resistance of um, socialist fighters in the concentration camps. Right? So that's the founding myth, of course, of, of East Germany. Some of you might have had a chance to be at a place like Buchenwald or Sachsenhausen, right? these huge concentration camp sites that ended up on East German soil after 45, and that became sites of as I also said in the documentary that you might have noticed yesterday, sites of socialist victory over evil, right? So they become joyous sites, positive sites, and sites that confirm um, how much we are right uh, building this East German socialist state, right? So that's part of that uh, dynamic, something that I'll get back to in a moment. But very much the emblematic symbol of all of this, what we've been talking about so far, is of course the Memorial Church in Berlin that some of you might remember, which when those of you who've been to Berlin, where very early, about a decade after the war, the decision is taken to have this kind of bombed out church ruin and turn it uh, into a, the first monument commemorating um, the suffering of World War II. And it's very much focusing, of course, on, let me see on what side I have it here, I don't remember, here, uh, the story of the women, the mothers, the children, right? The people that, of course, by definition uh, are seen as innocent. Uh, and their exposure to the air raids, to the war, uh, and that's the narrative that, so to speak, uh, is carried by that. So what kind of monuments are built? Already uh, in the 70s, there are 40,000 uh, memorials for um, soldiers that fell 
in World War II. Very often also in many German towns and villages and, and cities, you will have a monument that originally was put up for World War I, and then you'll have a list of the names who, who then fell in World War II. Right? So there are tens of thousands of these uh, memorials. Um, but it basically boils down to what you brought up right uh, from the get-go, and that's of course that you have kind of a victim syndrome. Right, this idea um, that um, with the focus on these victims, uh, there's a certain um, blocking out of a confrontation uh, with uh, the past, which also links in with one other complex that I quickly want to touch on. That's, of course, that the other story that is told is the story of the German resistance. It was tiny. It was insignificant. Uh, but of course there was a German resistance, and you know that there were about 30 attempts to actually assassinate Hitler. The one that might, one of the, uh, the attempts that came the closest was obviously um, Tom Cruise's attempt to, uh, oh sorry, uh, Stauffenberg's attempt to assassinate Hitler, right, on July 20th, uh, 1944. Uh, and that of course happened out of the Bender block, right, the, the supreme command of the German army, uh, where Stauffenberg also had a key uh, role, of course. So it's a history of the victims, it's a history of the heroic resistance fighters that will be uh, the main focus. But all of this, and that's why the reference to East Germany is so important, what was crucial here is, of course, that we have a clash of this anti-fascism, anti-communism thing. So the Cold War for these first many decades was crucial. How did it work? West Germans would say, oh, you have a problem with our society and our country and the way that we deal with our past? Geh doch rüber, as you would say in Germany. Then go to the other, uh, West Germany, then go to the other side. If you have a problem with, with West Germany, go to East Germany, if you really have something to criticize, if you think that's so much better, right? And they would also say, yes, Nazism was not a nice thing, but now we are already in the year 1951, or we are already in the year 1956. Where are the bad guys now? Where are the guys who actually establish a, they would say, totalitarian regime? They all sit in East Germany. So if you want to fight totalitarianism today, you have to fight against the communists. And don't be too preoccupied with already is six years old or 10 years ago, right? So that's where the anti-communism plays in. And it, of course, worked the other way around, as already mentioned, for the East Germans then to say, well, today, all these former fascists are in, um, in West Germany and they're part of the government there. The problem was, partially, that was correct, right? I mean, my mother is from a small town called Westerland, which, uh, I'm not looking at the German family here, they might know where that is, right? Um, up in the northwestern corner, there, uh, for decades, uh, a guy called um, Wilhelm, I think, Reinfahrt was the mayor from the late 50s, early 60s, and then for, for decades. And the irony is that my mother, in spite of being very critical about this whole past and about Nazism, actually never really talked about that much. And I had to become a university teacher and also go to Poland a lot until I realized that he is the SS guy who's in charge of destroying and clamping down the Warsaw Uprising. Uh, and he's the one who eventually uh, then uh, erases, right? So these guys will have careers in West Germany, right? Uh, there's a guy called Glopke, who is a Secretary of State to Adenauer, the first chancellor of West Germany, right? So all these guys, uh, oh, by the way, and Glopke was one of the key uh, legal scholars writing uh, important commentaries on the Nuremberg Laws, 
right? So all these guys, of course, are part of um, the West German politics to a degree. What can we make some assumptions about when that status quo of this willful forgetfulness changes? What are the factors that eventually uh, will cause that mantle of, of very selective historical consciousness um, to change? The establishment of the state of Israel and the efforts of the of Israel to locate and find and put on trial some of the key people like I am. Absolutely, right? The establishment of the state of Israel, the fact that Israeli authorities end up bringing Eichmann to trial. The irony is who found Eichmann? The nice narrative is, well, Mossad is out there, they're doing the good thing. No, it was not Mossad. It's a German-Jewish state prosecutor who returns to Frankfurt and works there. There was a movie about that made that about uh, a few years ago. Um, Bauer, right? Um, who identifies him, and because he doesn't trust his own West German authorities, ends up giving the information to Mossad. And the interesting thing is that Ben-Gurion, just to qualify your story a little bit, actually argues against going for Eichmann to begin with. He says they are mess that would mess up things right now. It doesn't fit onto where we are right now. We should not be concerned about building the state here and now bringing Eichmann into this whole thing really messes things up. So there is a conflict within the Israeli government, and eventually people say, no, we have to do this. Right? But that was very much a 50-50 thing, which I find mind-blowing, right? because it's so much later generations tell it as the gung-ho success story. It's much more complicated right, in that situation, of course. But it had an enormous impact in Israel, that's for sure, and some impact in Germany. Um, also because at the same time you had a series of other court cases and for the first time West Germany actually starts to sue its own criminals. Minimally, small percentage, but at least there are court cases. Eichmann starts, I believe, 60, right, 60, 61. Um, in 58, around the same time, you start to have the first Einsatzgruppen, execution commando uh, members who are brought to trial in Ulm. Uh, in 61 to 63, you have the Auschwitz trial in Frankfurt, right? You start, slowly start to have some court cases, and that's, of course, a very important uh, factor uh, in that whole um, process. And then, of course, what we also already talked about yesterday that, were, or, or that the movie brought up uh, is that there are two other factors. One is, of course, the whole kind of youth movement and protest and uh, civil rights movement um, in the 60s. The problem with that whole uh, movement is, of course, uh, that it very often ends up with these very generalizing accusations, which are very often don't really go into the details. So it just ends up with this accusation, also generational accusation, um, how could you do this? But nobody talks about what this is, right? So neither the perpetrators nor the victims, for that matter, somehow become specific, manifest, you know, they, it stays all on this very abstract, general level of accusation, of political theory, of, um, of other categories. So it's a beginning, it's a door that's opened, uh, but still it's very limited, of course. And then, of course, what is very important as well, as we saw in the movie yesterday, is, of course, TV, surprisingly, right? We as historians write books and books, and nobody really takes much care uh, about it, but what matters is, it was, now we might, that might change, is, of course, uh, the TV series The Holocaust, right? That came out in 79. Yeah? Do you think the phenomenon you just described had something to do with the victims themselves being very 
very quiet about what had happened to them. There are a lot of people who had no idea what their relatives had gone through because Grandma never talked about it. Grandma didn't talk about it. Can you repeat that? Yes. Um, the point, the question, or the argument was that uh, probably uh, also the fact that the, the victims very often remain silent, right? To a degree in Germany, definitely also in other countries, right, where the, the survivors would go. And uh, that's a very plausible uh, assumption. What is for sure is that we have this bizarre situation that in the country of the murderers, of the perpetrators, and in the communities or in the state of the survivors, we have similar phenomena, right, of a certain kind of, of, of silence and very different factors that cause it, right, but uh, that play a role into it. Even in Israel, I have a friend whose um, uncle, great uncle, painted, and when he, um, he was actually in um, Lithuania and went underground and then ended up in concentration camp, then went to Israel and he was trying to paint Holocaust pictures and Israel was not being well received. They actually all ended up in a basement for a long time uh -huh. uh, because Israel didn't want to really hear about it either. That generation didn't uh -huh. Though Yad Vashem had been established so early, right, but the focus was somewhere different. And that is where, of course, the Eichmann trial played a huge role because all the, uh, suddenly the uh, survivors ended up hundreds and hundreds of, of speaking in the courtroom. Right? So that was a, obviously a very important uh, threshold. And then also, um, I mean, the experience of 67, the wars, etc., then also brought this experience, of course, to the forefront in many ways. In terms of one quick comment, in terms of the Cold War, of course, the fall of the wall changed the whole situation, right? So with 89, eventually, that time window was closed and this whole thing of being preoccupied by blaming each other across the wall or the border did not work anymore. But uh, there was a comment here? Well, I was question. if you could say something about how the, there must have been a massive rebuilding requirement uh, did that just happen continuously, or did that? Uh, when did the Marshall Plan kick in? Did, it, did that affect? Uh, Marshall Plan forty-eight, I believe, but I'm not one hundred percent sure about that, right? So it played a huge role. Marshall Plan first and foremost in terms of the economic help, but also in general, of course, that's an excellent point because what it what it implies is that people could occupy themselves with an awareness of having a horrible past behind us, but being focused on the present. Yes, it was horrible and bad what happened a decade or two ago, but we need now to focus on rebuilding our cities, getting our own first home, having our first Beetle Volkswagen, um, building our, you know, establishing yourselves again. So it became, and of course that goes hand in hand with the fact that also in more general terms, these are the years that West Germany slowly develops into a consumer society, right? And that also completely changes ideas of authority and so on. But that's the process that we are talking about, of course. Yeah. I, uh, isn't it the case that some of the initial the initial uh, reason why some Nazi people ended up in positions of authority in the post-war immediate German government is because the um, occupation, principally the American part of the occupation, put those people in there in some cases. Yeah. The, the key institution that played a role in that whole process was the CIA. Right? The CIA, next to other organizations, 
but uh, it was both certain elites in West Germany and elites uh, and government institutions in the Western allies in their countries who argued um, right now the battle is against the Soviet Union. That's the big global clash. And whether your biography is a little bit problematic, doesn't matter right now. What we need is for you to get into the ranks. And that's the whole, I mean, it starts with Operation Paperclip and, and, and scholars being brought to America, but it continues with having these people brought into um, key functions now. And when you look at who writes about, or what kind of books have been written about mid-century German history, there's a whole series of books over the last 10 years that look at um, the German, West German intelligence, West German criminal investigation police, West German foreign office, West German interior um, administration, or, or, and so on, and how there is this continuity, and 45 is not that switch. People were in, in, in certain positions, and very soon after they again continued in these positions. Right, I think it's not, yeah. But it, it, what's hard to square is this notion that the miniseries, TV miniseries in 1979, created an awareness of German, among German people of all these atrocities. And this awareness didn't exist before. Or maybe it started with the Frankfurt uh, trials in the, in the 60s. That's hard to square with the notion that, that they had to know you had the Nuremberg trials in what, 46, 47, in that, that time period. You had the payment of what, a billion dollars or so to Israel in reparations in the very, very early 50s. I mean, this can't go on with people saying, well, I didn't know anything happened at all, that they didn't have an awareness that there was a Holocaust. There had to be an awareness. The only thing that I can figure out is that perhaps there was, even though there's awareness, there's a denial, and now there's a new generation in the 70s where they accepted the denial. And now they saw that the denial can't be true, and they realized what happened in the earlier generation. Is that possible? It, it's an interesting thought. Um, I think that one should not overestimate the impact that the Nuremberg trial had on the broader West German, or for that matter, German population, um, nor um, the Israeli, the, I mean, the, the reparations paid to Israel. Because the, uh, the Nuremberg trial, which of course, um, in terms of all the four allies being participant ran from 45 to 46, and then you only had the Americans continuing after that, right, for, with the, the doctor's trial and so on after that, until, um, I believe, 48. Um, that was by many Germans seen as uh, victor's justice. Uh, there, there was not much credibility or significance given to Nuremberg. There was an intense coverage, but that was not seen. The, so the victors built up their, their tribunal. What's new? We always had, that, had had that in history. To accept what happens in Nuremberg in 45, 46 as something that asks existential questions about my complicity as a German? Very rare. Again, a few handful of intellectuals, sure, and I don't want to underestimate that. But if you talk about millions of Germans? So that's not important in that context. 
and neither is the payment of, of money to Israel, because even the elites, even the Western elites, see that primarily not as moral expression of moral contrition. They see it as a check they can write or whatever they did, um, a, a suitcase they could pack with money, um, to buy their way back into the family of nations of the West. But it's not an acknowledgement of something dramatic that we all did wrong or something like that, right? So all these different events are things that stand out and that are significant. But in terms of this kind of broad impact of German society, I think we, can, we need to qualify uh, the impact uh, of that. And the argument why scholars who've looked into the, the impact of the TV series think it's so important is because for the first time, it's kind of ironic if you think about it, for the first time, broad parts of West German society saw perpetrators and victims of flesh and blood on the screen, but of flesh and blood. They were specific, they had personality, they, you could relate to them. The perpetrators looked similar to you as a German, and the victims were actually family vice, right? With father, mother, and whatever, right? They were, and you could relate to them much more than some plaque put up, put up in some West German city in the 50s and 60s where then would say, we mourn um, the, uh, the perishing of our Jewish co-citizens, uh, blah, 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 right? Where the way that it's phrased sounds as if there was a natural catastrophe or something like that, a hurricane coming in, right? There's no, there are no perpetrators, there are no, there's no subject and, and, and so on. So that's the mode that these plaques uh, deal with, with uh, the Holocaust these first decades. When did Germany start teaching its youth in school about Germany's role in uh, perpetrating the crimes against the, the Jews around the world? My understanding is that that wasn't for quite some time before Holocaust education even Absolutely, started. yeah. Again, it took about a generation. My mother, for example, who was born in 1936, had nothing in school right, uh, about this. Um, and also not years after that. In the 60s, there was a series of um, cases of vandalism against Jewish cemeteries in West Germany. And that sh set shock waves through um, West German public, or at least uh, the educated elites. And that is what gave the last push to decide we need to find ways to integrate what we today would call Holocaust education into the curriculum. Of course, that has also morphed and changed very much, but that's where it started, basically, in the 60s. And since the 80s, 90s, uh, it has a very strong presence in the, in the German curriculum, but it, it has been a process, for that matter, right, that um, we look at that. But the main punchline that I want to get to eventually now is with all this zigzagging and with all this hesitation and all these roadblocks, um, what really changed things was that you had a new generation um, it was the one after the 68ers, the next generation, so to speak, that said, we are sick and tired of this abstract accusation. We start to understand that the only way for us to build a democratic, open, inclusive, liberal civic society is by confronting the ghosts and by dealing with this past. It's only when we do our homework, it's only when we put these crimes of our parents and grandparents, so the generational difference is important, 
to take these crimes and put them on the table and deal with them, that we have a chance to actually build a functioning democracy. That link, in this very specific way, was crucial. And that grew out from small grassroots initiatives of the 80s, mainly, where people started to find, and it's, don't think of this to begin with as a mass phenomenon in West German society. It's this obnoxious, annoying, small super activist somewhere who says, we are going to illegally go in here and put up a sign where there was a, um, a concentration camp or something else. You know, it's this kind of, the people that, that most uh, other people are just irritated by, right? because they disturb the quiet, the, the, the saturation of society. Right? They're the ones who push in, and I t told you about the history of the topography of terror, which is a classic example of that, the site of the Gestapo and SS, we had that. But it also could be somebody who just said, I want to find out um, what the mayor in our town did. I want to find out where a, a satellite camp of uh, a concentration camp was in our neighborhood. Right? So you had all these kind of small initiatives that grew uh, in the 80s. The beautiful thing is, what happened was that a metaphor, and I should um, put this up, a metaphor was created around 80, that was called Dig Where You Stand, Grabe Wo Du Stehst. And it was thought of as, a, as an image, as a symbol of what you should do. And the craziest thing was that very often um, in places like uh, the topography of terror and many other places, it became literal. Right? They actually went out and started to dig. And if I only could get this to work. Um, here we go. You, uh, they actually went to these places with their spades and started to look for the traces in these different uh, locations. Um, in the 90s, there was a whole series of different debates about the past. There was a confrontation also between different um, ways of looking at the past between um, a conservative politician like Richard von Weizsäcker, who was the president of West Germany, um, and Helmut Kohl, who you probably all know, right, as the chancellor who had a much more hesitant uh, position in that whole uh, development. Many of you might remember or know about the fact that he was able to get Reagan uh, to visit a uh, cemetery of German soldiers where, coincidentally, also there were some SS soldiers uh, on that, right, in Bitburg. Uh, so, of course, these clashes very much also continued all the way into the 80s uh, and 90s. Um, but I would really say, as a summary of this whole discussion about the situation in Germany, what grew out of um, these debates was a, a consensus that the cornerstone of, uh, by now, united Germany of the 90s and early 2000s would be to confront um, this past. I was trying to see if I... Here we go. And, of course, in many ways, that whole series of memorials uh, that uh, were built in the course of the 90s and early 2000s, beginning with um, the Holocaust Memorial and uh, many others, of course, signify that as well. Where does this all bring us today? I just want to wrap up the whole German part for a moment uh, with just listing five, six factors that within the last 10, 20 years, 10, 15 years, has, been, has turned out to be crucial and a big challenge. And then I want to talk about Poland and try to see the differences um, and um, overlaps that we see there. On the basis of all these different developments, um, 
there's since the early 2000s been a new generation of people arguing in favor of talking about German suffering. Um, many of you will be familiar with Günther Grass, right? So he, for example, published a book in 2002, three, I'm not sure, um, that was called Crab Walk, um, where he wrote, it's a novel um, that actually is about uh, the sinking of a ship, Wilhelm Gustloff, um, that transported thousands of refugees, primarily, not only, but primarily refugees, many of them, of course, women and, and children, from eastern parts of uh, the Baltic right, towards Germany, fleeing the Russians, and it was sunk, and thousands of um, people die, right, and are drowned in the Baltic. Um, and that was one of these first literary ways of starting to talk about uh, German suffering. Uh, Jörg Friedrich, uh, also in the same years, about 15, 16 years ago now, wrote several books uh, about the, the air raids. And basically, the underlying argument was, now we, for 10, 20 years, have managed to talk about the crimes of our parents and grandparents. Shouldn't we be allowed also to talk about the hardships that we as Germans went through? And this looks very tempting, you know, as a logic uh, in the beginning. Um, the problem was, of course, then, when you have a guy like Jörg Friedrich, who writes a book about the air raids, but uses terms um, when he describes, for example, the American pilots in the, in the bomber planes as Einsatzgruppen commanders, uh, or when he describes the, um, the, the air raid shelters as gas chambers, he uses Holocaust metaphors, right? And the, in the end of the day, of course, it boils down to that, that whole push for German victimhood that started in the early 2000s, um, had a very hard time finding the right balance between, on the one hand, saying, yes, people like my mother, and I don't mean this metaphorically, I mean it literally, right? my mother, who's born 36, starved at the end of the war and after 45. She had a hard time. Of course she's a victim of history. You know, she, of course she had a hard time. And she deserves to be acknowledged for that. Right? I mean, she was eight when the war was over. What did she do wrong? Right? So of course you have stories like that. But on the other hand, that has to be differentiated from the hunger, from the appetite and desire to be seen as victims, as a collective, as a group. Right? And that's, of course, very, two very different things, I would argue, uh, at least, that we see in this situation. The second point that I want to highlight is we've had a fascinating confrontation between um, public and private memory. And one of the key moments when that actually came out um, was when, um, you'll just see some other photos from other memorials, or in this case, the Jewish Museum in Berlin, um, when there was an exhibit about the German army, the Wehrmacht, 20 years ago. And that exhibit actually brought out something that was obvious to historians for decades. And that was that the German army very often had been assisting and helping in the genocide, sometimes had perpetrated itself, sometimes just had kind of been the broader facilitator, making it possible for other killing units to do their, their bloody work. So they did told these stories. And suddenly you had mass demonstrations where thousands of Germans, um, sometimes led by uh, neo-Nazi groups or other radical groups, but sometimes also just out on the street saying, my grandfather was not a murderer. 
right, defending the honor of the German soldier, which seems bizarre, I'm sure, from your perspective, but that was the discussion that Germany was preoccupied by in the late 90s and early 2000s. And I think, without dwelling on this for too long, there's one very simple explanation why this so much stirred things up. When you talk about the German army and the crimes, you tear down the wall between the crimes out there and your family living room. Suddenly, the responsibility for the crimes pushes right into the inner circle of your family. It's not about those Nazis. It's about your father, your grandfather, an uncle, and so on. So it's a very different thing. Because, I mean, just look at these numbers. In, just in Russia alone, there were 8 million German soldiers. Right? It's an enormous number. And, and of course, many of these were involved with uh, the atrocities in one way or the other. So we're talking about a very different. It's not about 10 or 20,000 um, SS killers, right? or whatever number we want to put on, the, on that, of course, in that setting. So that's, of course, an, a fascinating conflict that arises with these. Third factor. Um, for a long time, there was a big discussion about how the different generations talk about um, the memory uh, from the first to the second to the third generation. And Harald Welzer wrote a, a fascinating book that was called Opa war kein Nazi, um, where he basically shows how, that goes a little bit into the discussion, that we, the argument that we had about the 70s and how that changed things. What we can see is that around the 90s and early 2000s, you would have younger people embellishing um, the stories that they hear from their grandparents. So on the one hand, Germany as a whole becomes more and more critical of Nazi past, but on the other hand, we whitewash the history of our own family. Not so surprising, because it is very hard to imagine, that's also what the statement was there in the movie, it's very hard to imagine somebody who's really close to your heart as a killer. Right? So you're, you're willing to go at length to somehow twist that story, uh, basically. So, Granddad was not a Nazi, which, by the way, also is a, there's a summary of uh, 20 pages online that, if you're interested, you should look up, um, that describes these processes. But that's, of course, between the first, second, and third generation. But the interesting thing is, what about the fourth generation? What about the people who were born in um, the 90s and, and, or even after that? How do they deal with this whole question? And obviously, the jury is out on that one, but it seems as if a lot of young Germans who are high school age today, or let's say college age today, um, actually tend to be willing to integrate the history of Nazism and the Holocaust into their own legacy, into their own heritage. This is part of who we are. But that they are disgusted and bored by the rituals of commemoration that they've experienced. They don't want to go on silent marches through a city. They don't want to be told to behave in a certain memorial in a certain way. They want to be able to ask real questions that push the envelope and that ask for the relevance of learning about Nazism for today and to create that connection. And I think that's where the tension is. Obviously, I'm trying to generalize a very amorphous picture, but that's the trends that, that uh, I seem to be able to yeah, identify. I, say, I see them, those born in the 90s and 2000 and on, saying, 
we need to understand this so we know how it happened so we can ensure we don't do it again. It doesn't happen to us again. So we need to understand it maybe, if not more, at least as much for our own benefit so we can keep our society from repeating this and helping us understand the, the, how these even happened, how our ancestors became these and absolutely, and also to connect with that, I mean, just to ask also historical questions, uh, instead of just having some kind of commemorative, contrite silence, to ask what kind of society believes in 33 or in 36 that they need a concentration camp? What kind, what, what, what kind of, what is it that leads to that notion? Right? So to suddenly find a different angle that gets at very specific social, psychological, political issues that even approaching them in a historical framework have a significance for questions that you raise today. Right? So that's the, that's the desire, and I'm not sure that we as educators always do justice to that. But that's part of that debate, of course, that is going on, and also the revamping uh, of curricula and many other things, of course, in that context. Um, let me just touch two other, on two other factors that change the German situation, and then we should talk about Poland for a moment. Um, what, of course, also changes the whole makeup of dealing with this past are two factors. One is um, the European framework of this, right? Increasingly, of course, in the, in the 90s and also uh, into the 2000s, there's been an increasing awareness of how World War II in its own ways, and particularly also the Holocaust, was a European historical event. And there's a, a European um, culture of memory that has grown right, over the years. And it's not homogenous. Um, there are also conflicts between East and West and many other factors, but uh, in many uh, areas, of course, there is a, dial a dialogue right, with the other European countries how to deal uh, with this past. And there's the obvious factor of Germany having become a multicultural society. Right? So if my parents are born in Anatolia and were Turkish citizens, or might be Turkish citizens still today, Am I really responsible for all of this? I mean, I can just be proud of Ottoman grand grandeur, right? Why should I feel bad about what the Germans did? Right? And that's, of course, a question that you as an educator in a school or in the Jewish Museum or in other memorial sites, you need to be able to have an answer to that. Uh, and there are a variety of different ways of reacting to it. You will have German politicians who say, um, this is the ultimate uh, litmus test, right? If you actually want to live in this society and be German, you have to participate and be part of this culture of, of memory uh, and in this part of historical education. That's part of who we are. Um, there are other people who say, well, but we also need to think about how we tell the story. And if we tell the story about World War II and the Holocaust where there is no room for that German-Turkish um, boy or girl, then we have to think about how to retell that story, right? because of course the connections are there, right? and to make it also relevant for them in terms of both their own responsibility, but also their own experiences of marginalization and feeling pushed out of German society today. Right? So that's the tricky uh, part, so to speak, in that uh, context. And that's of course is very much, I don't know if you followed that, but if you followed European media, or which you probably don't, German media over the last couple of days, the big discussion that was, uh, was that uh, Mesut Özil, I'm sure that you all know who Mesut Özil is, right? Soccer player, wow. 
Uh, and do you remember the story? What was the what it was about? <laughs> yeah. I think that he ended up at a fundraising event or whatever it was, some event in London where uh, Edouard was. Um, I think he brought him a jersey t together with another uh, player and they took a photo that they posted on um, the wonderful social media that we have. Um, uh, and uh, that of course created a stir because how can you support somebody like uh, the, this kind of Turkish um, semi-dictator? Um, can you really kind of be part of that? Um, political project, and he, he remained silent for months. Um, now the German um, performance at the World Cup was uh, um, not really up to par, let's put it carefully, right? So they were out really fast, um, which probably even made the whole problem worse, because in the end there were some uh, representatives of the media that ended up saying, well, primarily it was also because Ozil played so bad, and anyway, what about this whole photo, right? So in any ways, it, it just was a kind of a scapegoat thing that also was going on. And eventually he came out and said, I'm stepping back, I'm leaving the national team, and I'm also leaving it because of this racist treatment that I've uh, experienced, right? So that has really brought this whole debate, of course, also of that marginalization experience of people with a... Uh, non-white, non-Christian, whatever uh, um, background to the forefront in that uh, whole scenario. So that's where we are uh, in terms of these different tensions and, and, and discussions that are going on uh, in Germany today. And of course, they have only been exacerbated by, to come back to my starting point, by uh, the fact that we, for the first time uh, in post-war German history, have a political party actually in the parliament um, that not only promulgates ideas that are uh, fairly familiar to you from other right-wing parties in, in Europe, um, but also call for a radical revision of that culture of me memory and for that uh, civic education that is born out of um, acknowledging the crimes of the Holocaust. Right? So that's, of course, in that sense also has become an, a different debate. Before I switch to Poland, just want to open the floor if there are any kind of questions uh, about that so far. Yeah. What degree is Germany's acceptance of refugees and Angela Merkel's leading that uh, a product of Holocaust memory? Mm. Please repeat the question. Yes. To what degree uh, is uh, Angela Merkel's acceptance of refugees a result of Holocaust memory? It's hard to tell what went on in Angela Merkel's head in that specific moment. Um, most of the arguments that she has explicitly argue, uh, kind of articulated had to do with the fact that she said there was a specific humanitarian crisis and I saw it as our duty to act in that particular moment. If I zoom out from Merkel, I am confident to say that at least a significant part of the German public felt that especially because of um, German crimes between 33 and 45, we all the more have the duty to take the right political decision in this specific situation. So in that sense, partially I would see that link, um, but it's, it's, uh, I would not limit it to that. 
Uh, I would also not limit it to that because then you end up with the counter argument saying just because the Germans are so stuck up with their own history, they take all these wrong political decisions, uh, right? And that would also be a little bit of a simplification, right? So it plays in as a factor, um, but I wouldn't uh, overdo it. And there are people who are very cynical and, and, and have argued it has been good for the German labor market and whatever, right? So, so it's obviously a very complex set of motives that have led to that very particular um, policy. Um, and one should not underestimate, I'm, I mean, A, I'm a Danish citizen, B, if I would be a German citizen, I might not even over the years not necessarily have voted for, for Merkel, nevertheless in those years and with that decision, I personally, uh, full disclosure, was 100% supportive of her decision in that specific moment. That being said, it's also very obvious that to degree in conflicts with other parts of, of the conservative union uh, in German politics, partially in confrontation with them, partially in alliance with them, that very much of an open door and humanitarian approach has been diminished, right? So without necessarily, I mean, Merkel has found a relatively elegant way of, on the one hand, creating a very different policy without actually saying, oh, I think I should change my course here, right? So um, she didn't continue with that 1915-16 course necessarily. In the beginning, when you first started speaking tonight, you talked about sites of joyous history. I don't know if it was with the presence of the past or the forgetfulness and victimization, but you mentioned Sachsenhausen in the same sentence, and I missed what you said. Yeah. Because that just seemed to make sense to me. Here we go. Oops. Um, what I meant, and I was a little bit too fast there, was that a place like Sachsenhausen, so a former concentration camp, actually would be used for um, very celebratory events. So when uh, the Socialist Party and its youth organizations would celebrate May 1st, right, Day of Labor, they would have joyous celebrations out on a big square that had been created in the middle of um, the former concentration camp, and there were some instances even of weddings taking place there. Right? Oh no, 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 I'm talking about that was a misunderstanding. I'm talking about when I said when I used the word joyous. What I meant by it was that sites that had been sites of crimes of Nazism were used by East Germany as stages of celebrating. Um, the victory of the forces of good, which is, as we all know, socialism, right? That was the, that was the narrative, so to speak, that they used it in the 60s as this uh, uh, um, stage for those kind of celebrations. One last question, and then we'll move to Poland. How important do you think it will be when the last survivor <coughs> of that period, German or victim or Jew or whatever, when there are no more people who actually live through it, will have on this problem? It's a debate that, it's a conversation that I've had with friends and colleagues for most of my professional life, right? because of course we have started to see that coming, let's say, at least since the 90s, if not before that, for the obvious reasons. Uh, and we've always wondered, and to be honest, I don't have a real answer for you. I, I'm worried um, that a certain notion of remoteness, of distance, will be reinforced by that. Uh, I'm worried that a certain sense of an abstract 
um, less fact-based um, relationship with that um, will develop. But on the other hand, all the years that I've been working in this field, I've always noticed how there's been clashes between survivors on the one hand and historians on the other, right? So that whole clash over what actually happened will not start with the moment that there are no survivors left anymore. And the other aspect of it is, is of course, we're already there. I mean, when I um, run the FASB programs, we are very keen on still having a survivor speak to us. But right now, we have a survivor speaking to us who is in her mid-90s. Uh, and what she can do right now is to read from her own book, which is beautiful and great, but of course not the most interactive uh, situation that you can have. And she was also, um, whatever that makes her, but she was a teenager at the time, right? So in other words, we are basically almost there, and we're definitely all, uh, almost there in, in terms of the perpetrators, right? Because of course they need, in most cases, they needed to be a little bit older, while we have, perhaps that's the last point that I want to say about that. What I do see also is a redefinition of the term survivor, right? I mean, a generation ago or two generations ago, people would be much more specific and they would talk about survivors as people who actually would be liberated from a concentration camp or a different site. Now, of course, much more often we, we're talking about child survivors, we're talking about people who are in hiding, and it makes perfect sense to me, but we also just have to be aware of that, right? That, uh, for the obvious reasons, we define the categories much broader. But it remains to be seen. Right? For me, the bottom line is that it's all the more significant, of course, to really care and to think about what are we doing from now on. Right? Which brings me to Poland, because, of course, these debates, of course, have been going on uh, in many ways. And in many ways, I also just want to uh, perhaps use a few minutes to open up a discussion so that uh, in five minutes or so we can have it as an interactive com um, dialogue. But I'm sure that most of you, have followed that whole debate that came out of the, uh, what some people call the anti-defamation law. Um, for those of you who are not fully familiar with it, uh, it was an initiative that to begin with made it a, um, the term felony, made it a crime um, to um, argue uh, that the Polish nation had been complicit in Nazi German crimes. Uh, and um, the problem with that is, of course, that, that whole, the way that that law was phrased was in many ways um, absurd and also self-contradictory, right? Because if you define Polish nation in the way that many Westerners and Americans would do, you would very often think about nation equaling state, right? Which is a big mistake in this context. Um, but when you come at it from that angle, you think of um, the sentence saying, you are not allowed to say that the Polish state um, was complicit with um, Nazi Germany in committing um, mass crimes. And then the easy answer is, duh, of course not, because there was no Polish state. And then you're kind of done with the topic, right? But it is more complicated for a whole series of reasons. A, um, for reasons that I briefly want to explain to you in a moment, state and nation are not the same thing in a Polish and in many European contexts. I mean, think of Switzerland or Belgium or whatever, right, by the way. Um, and look at the Catalan confrontation about nation and state. So obviously there, uh, this is a conceptual difference that we need to be aware of. 
And secondly, of course, it raises a very fundamental issue that we are by far not able to solve tonight, and that's the question of free speech, right? I mean, to what degree do we want state regulation of what is said in public about historical events in general, and particularly about the Holocaust? And the way that Germany deals with it is very different from the way that Spain deals with it, is very different from the way that Denmark deals with it, because these notions grow out of very particular political cultures, and for that matter, America, right? So, that's a whole can of worms that we cannot solve tonight, but that is part of that whole thing. And what we've seen over the last five, ten years is, of course, that a series of countries, also Russia, Hungary, other countries, have established um, history laws. They have said there are certain things about our national history that you cannot say, and if you do it, say it, you'll be brought to trial. For example, uh, uh, Russia um, said that if you in any way criticize or diminish the importance of the Great Patriotic War, which is what they call World War II, uh, and in any way kind of um, say something negative about it, you'll have a court, uh, you'll be indicted, right? you'll be brought to court. And of course, you can imagine that many of the citizens of the Baltic countries said, wait a minute, uh, for us, uh, a lot of the military activities of the Soviet Union were deeply problematic, uh, especially with the occupation afterwards, right? So that's, of course, one example where these history laws came into effect. Well, Germany for several generations now have had a law, has had a law that outlaws Holocaust denial, that outlaws uh, identifying yourself as a Nazi, et cetera, et cetera, which of course means that many of these extreme right-wing politicians uh, zigzag in and out of, of prisons, right? Because they again, they come out of the prison, they again deny the Holocaust, they go back into prison, right? And you could also argue, is that the right way to do it? Or is it that the right way to, for the 21st century? I'm not sure about it, to be honest, right? But I perfectly understand why German politicians for several decades have said, yes, of all places, here in Germany, we don't want to see Holocaust denial, right? Or in other ways. So we need to be able to define that. Uh, so that's, of course, the broader field that we're operating with. But let's talk about Ger uh, Poland for a moment. Obviously, I'm not going to um, tell you the history of a thousand years of Poland or for that matter, Polish Jewish history, but there's one punchline that I just think that is really important for us um, to keep in mind. And that is, of course, that the Poland that you guys know and that we know from the 20th century is only um, one small sliver, so to speak, of a very complicated and long uh, history. And I just want to remind you of that when you go back a couple of centuries, Poland looked very different. Uh, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth that you, in many ways, uh, will um, visit and, and also encounter on your uh, tour um, was one of the largest territorial states in, in Europe, and you can see that also on the lower uh, map for that matter. And it, it's that huge European territorial state that for many Jews became the perfect refuge uh, the place where Jews were able to build up an autonomy that they didn't have in many other European countries. And uh, you could even argue that in many places in Poland, they were not re it doesn't even make sense to talk about a Jewish minority because there were places where there would be 20 or 40% Jews and particularly the, uh, in the houses around the market square, there would even be more than 50% Jews living, right? So this whole notion of Poland and then having a Jewish minority in Poland conceptually even doesn't make sense, right? When we talk about 13, 14, 15, 16, 1700, right? Uh, these centuries there. Now, again, I don't want to go into details with this, but what I want to remind you of is, of course, what happens in the 18th, late 18th century. What's going on? Partition, right? So in three 
turns, so to speak, in three go-arounds. Um, there is an unfriendly takeover by the neighbors, right, by Russia, by Austria, and by Prussia. Uh, and eventually, in the course of these decades, um, from the 1770s and into the 1790s, Poland, that had somewhat of a weak central authority, a weak king, uh, challenged by a strong aristocracy, uh, had, didn't have, couldn't mobilize the, the uh, power to withstand um, those attacks, and eventually, with 1795, Poland disappears. It flares up uh, in different situations when Napoleon comes in and when the Russians establish some kind of entity, but in the big picture is, uh, is of course, there is no Polish state. Right? From 1795 until 1918. And that is, of course, extremely important because it also means that before all that period, um, have no Polish citizenship and Poles had to look for other places for um, an idea of uh, national identity. So how do I define national identity if I don't have a state? How is my nation defined? Religion, which means Catholicism, language, or broader culture, right? So nation becomes a community of culture. Right? And that of, that's of course, and a community of culture uh, that very often is defined by a very specific ethnic, or you could also say ethnocentric nationalism uh, with a strong kind of Catholic uh, twist. Um, so there's no strong loyalty towards the state because how can you do that if it's not your state? It's Vienna, it's Berlin, right? Um, it's in St. Petersburg. So the power is somewhere else. Um, and in that sense, of course, it becomes much more important to define what the boundaries of your culture is. And that is where this kind of Polish-speaking Roman Catholic uh, factors and a myth of origin mythological history, the golden age of that Poland that existed once uh, becomes um, relevant. And the important thing is here, that is a mythologized history because the actual Poland before 1770s, 1790s was a multi-ethnic, multicultural society. We had a lot of Jews, a lot of Ukrainians, a lot of German-speaking people, Lithuanians, etc. They all lived in that state. But the story that is told, right, the, the, the mythological idea is this one of um, the nation uh, and the dream and the hope for a homogenous um, society. So there's a clash between the reality uh, and um, the, uh, the experience and the myths that uh, develop. That, of course, means here, you see some pictures also of what that looks like for all these years, uh, that when um, Poland becomes independent after 1918, there is a clash over what that Poland should be, but all that becomes uh, moot uh, because eventually, of course, Poland is attacked from both sides, and again, Poland disappears. Right? Yeah. Which I believe was near Krakow, I'm not sure exactly, but I know it was one of many shtetls. So yeah. 
the Shedalites culturally, that was a little different than perhaps the, the Catholic whole cultural life. But where, when did they first emerge, and, and when did the Jews become more attached to their Shedalites than to the overarching Polish cultural life? Or was it one and the same, except for the religion? Let me start somewhere. I mean, first of all, I would recommend you sooner or later to visit the fantastic uh, new museum in Warsaw because that gives you a, a visual representation. I don't know if you've had a chance, but you'll wait for Aria to go there, right? So that is really, I would say it's, I mean, I'm, I've been seen, I saw quite a few museums. I think it's one of the best that you can visit right now. Um, so you should not miss that. And that's why you need to go on this trip with Aria. Um, so that's really a fantastic representation of that. Second point, uh, that museum is called Polin for a good reason. A, you might know that it's a Hebrew, way, uh, Hebrew word for, for Poland. Um, secondly, also, uh, there is this uh, imaginary um, etymology of saying that it means here I rest. So kind of God tells a wandering Jew that is walking through the area to say this is a good place here you should rest. And that builds up, that's the cornerstone of this whole understanding of Poland is a good place for Jews. Poland is a place where we are, um, where there's space for us, where we have a degree of um, acceptance that is higher uh, than in many other uh, parts of Poland, uh, of, of Europe for that matter. Uh, of course there are pogroms, of course there's discrimination, of course there's persecution, uh, but the situation of Ju Jewish life is, is better than many other places in, in, in Europe. Uh, and this idea of constant pogroms is also much more a perspective backwards uh, that is created. So you have this strong uh, history. Um, and one should not underestimate the degree to which also in Poland, Jews end up trying to become part of Polish culture. Sometimes you have the simplified notion, which I'm not saying that you have, um, that oh, in Western Europe and in Germany, they all gave up their Judaism and they all became Germans and they so much wanted to be Germans and they all you know, betrayed their identity. While in Poland, they all were loyal to their Jews. That's a very convenient post-Holocaust narrative that does not really meet the realities of the 19th century. It's much more complicated. And ironically enough, also in Poland, for example, you had a lot of uh, Jewish intellectuals that either ended up learning Polish or for that matter Russian or German, right? So this whole question of being Jewish and part of broader society is a European phenomenon, right? Yes, very different in Poland and other places, but I, I just would like to argue against the black and white uh, mechanism, so to speak. And again, the other story is, of course, Jewish life in the 19th century and early 20th century was not shtetl life only. It was one side of it, and it was important, but it's also, again, an image, right? As, as also, um, and actually Stephen Zipperstein, that I think you had as a visitor, has written a fantastic book about that, how it becomes an extremely important story that American Jews tell to each other, right? About the shtetl life and the romanticism and, and how that is all where we come from, so to speak. But when we dive into the experience of Polish Jews, some live that, Others live in Warsaw, others live part uh, and, and try to find a way into Polish culture. But to get back to my point here, that is very often difficult because that Polish culture is so Catholic and so national and exclusivist, right? So some people get one foot in the door, but there is this tension and this uh, rejection. So the bottom line that I want to wrap up uh, with is what leads to that law is, of course, very much um, 
that people have argued, um, and I'm quoting here a friend, Konstantin Gebert, who you might meet when you get to Warsaw, I hope, at least for you. Uh, Kostek very often says, um, we have one uh, main fundamental cognitive mistake that we do, and that is that we argue because we shared one geography, we also shared a history. And that's not really the case, right? The Jewish experience and the Polish experience very much went uh, into completely different uh, directions. And uh, we've, of course, seen that. That's what I will uh, close with, is that sites that when I, as a German, why don't I tell you that as a personal story? That's what Ari uh, asked me for. When I went to Auschwitz for the first time, I went there with my, um, one of my professors in Berlin, and it was 20 years ago, a little more than 20 years. And uh, we went there, and we had a, a Polish guide, and it was a phenomenal guide. Um, but that Polish guide very much emphasized the Polish experience of suffering at Auschwitz. And we, as these non-Jewish German graduate students, more and more were in the background, kind of gruntled and criticizing and saying, why doesn't he acknowledge that this is the prime site of the genocide of European Jews? What is this whole Polish thing? Until a friend of mine, I would like to tell you that it was me, but it was a friend of mine who went to me and the others and said, what is up with you guys? Is that really the role that you as a German should have, to walk around here and give cookie points for, for a good guide or not? That's not our role. We're here as the grandchildren of the murderers. We should just step back and be, uh, have a certain humble attitude to these discourses. But what we experienced in that moment was a clash over the importance of a certain site. And with the rise of what some people have called the Holocaust paradigm, Jews had increasingly really seen Auschwitz and many other places as very important sites of memory for their identity also. On the other hand, already since 45, because of that history that I tried to communicate to you about Poland disappearing again and again, and Poland very often just being kept up by this religious cultural sense of identity that pushed non-Catholics and non-Poles out of it, there was this sense that we as Poles are the Christ of the nations. We are the perfect sacrifice. We are the ones who over the centuries again and again have suffered the most. And suddenly then these Jews come in and claim, no, we suffered the most. Right? Kostek also very often says, being Polish is like being Nagasaki, if you understand that metaphor. Right? It might be a morbid uh, metaphor, but I think you understand what he's saying. Right? This weird confrontation and, and, and competition over victimhood, basically. So over generation now, there have been movies like Ida, uh, there have been books about Jedwabne and the, uh, uh, the complicity of Poles in the murder uh, that Germany um, orchestrated. There's been a whole debate about how Poles, to a degree, were saving Jews and to a degree were complicit in the murder. And the right-wing populist nationalist government that has come into power in 2015 um, of the uh, Justice and, and Law uh, Party is trying, of course, to not only uh, revamp uh, the whole legal system and the political system and the cultural system education, but of course also the way that the history is told. And they do it uh, regarding Auschwitz, and they do it regarding um, 
the new World War II Museum in uh, Gdansk, where they try to change the narrative and push through a narrative that fits with that notion of Polish victimhood. And that is why that law, by many people, is primarily seen as anti-Semitic, and I perfectly understand that. But I also think that for us, looking at that, it's important to understand that uh, it's more than that, and it's perhaps not even primarily about that. Uh, that that kind of a law is, is mainly uh, part of an inner Polish conflict where the society is split. Some people want to continue that self-critical approach to, German, uh, to, sorry, to European history that Germany had to learn so slow over all these decades while uh, Poland is in the middle of these uh, battles. And then there's the last twist that I want to tell you that a, a, uh, an American friend who lives in Warsaw told me just a few weeks ago, and he said, what many people also do not know is that there was a domestic policy reason for that law. A new prime minister was about to get into office, uh, and he was one part, he was representing one branch of the Justice and Law Party. Um, a very powerful other politician within the same party but on a more conservative track inside the party, wanted basically to roll a hand grenade into uh, that new office of the new prime minister. And that's why that law was promulgated and suggested. Because pushing that in was for everybody in that party was clear the new prime minister has no chance of, re of rejecting it. If he, re he rejects it, he's out of politics. So he has to say yes. But at the same time, it's obvious that the hand grenade is going to explode and Israel is going to go up the walls and American Jews and other countries will protest and so on, right? So, it was, that was the, so there's also that aspect to it. So it's a complex development that's part of that. That's what I will uh, um, wrap up with. Are there questions that you uh, want to raise regarding? How, do we have five minutes for questions? Yeah. Or? yeah. Uh, can, I, can I start with a personal question? Yes. So tell us what, Charlie's going to ask. Tell us a little about you and your wife <laughs> and your story in that regard. Yeah. And yeah. share that because that's part of the whole thing. Part of the journey story. Yeah, yeah, perhaps. Um, I assume that what Ari and Charlie, for that matter, is referring to is that. Uh, we have a little bit of an um, interesting patchwork family at home, culturally, and, and also, for that matter, in terms of religious identity, because um, as a part of my work uh, in Berlin, and also part of my guide activities, I ended up meeting a wonderful girl, from, a Jewish girl from Florida, uh, back in 2012, that I ended up uh, marrying a few months later. Uh, so, it's probably... <laughs> Just to clarify, right? <laughs> so um, we have this little bit of a bizarre uh, um, situation that, of course, uh, is particularly crazy if you even put into the equation that um, my cousin, who basically is, I, I'm the only child of my parents. I was always very close to my cousin, who is a daughter of one of my father's brothers, who almost became like a sister for me. And um, when I came back after spending one year as a volunteer in a hospital in Jerusalem, uh, working as a kind of a nurse at Al in Alin, um, my uncle said, go and talk to your cousin and tell how fantastic it was in, in Jerusalem. Um, perhaps she also wants to do something meaningful. She's also in this situation where she needs to do a gap year between high school and something else. 
And off she went a few months later. She also went to Jerusalem, also worked as a nurse volunteer somewhere, and met an Israeli, fell in love, <laughs> converted, uh, and is now raising three very blonde Jewish girls uh, in Modi'in between Jerusalem and, and uh, Tel Aviv. So when we meet in Tel Aviv, we're kind of joking about how our grandparents probably rotate in their graves if they would know what, what happened to their families. Are you comparing Hamburg and Dresden to what? Dresden, the bombing of Dresden yeah. and Hamburg. The way, say, Japan may look at uh, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Is there that sort of... Uh, oh, between Hamburg and Dresden. With, are you talking about between German cities? No, no, no. No, sorry. Okay. Uh, the bombing of Dresden and Hamburg are considered like one of the uh, horrific elements of those particular bombs. And Hiroshima and Nagasaki for Japan are considered two of the horrific because it was an atom bomb. Yeah. These were, yeah, Hamburg was had the uh, you know the firebomb bombing and Dresden was supposedly a, a, well minimal military. And I was just wondering you know, did the Germans make any big big deal about yes. yes. I was trying to understand if there was an importance between the cities. You're more talking about the air raids as such and the, and the experience of, of air war, right, and the destruction. Um, I think that it has become a central uh, feature of that debate that I talked about that started 10, 15 years ago uh, in terms of this victimhood uh, discourse. Uh, and what happens there is very often that people even high-quality press will say, oh, finally we are allowed to talk about how horrific these experiences were. Uh, there was a taboo. We were not allowed to talk about this because we were kind of feeling obliged to talk about the Holocaust, so we didn't. But now, finally, we can talk about how bad it was to live in Hamburg in summer 43 or uh, in Dresden later, um, February 44, I believe. Uh, 45, sorry. Um, so the problem was, of course, that that's nonsense. That taboo never existed. Uh, and the first, as I said earlier, the first five, 10, 15 years, there was a lot of talk about the air raids. That was very much central. And it was, so in other words, good scholarship has actually told the story of the air raids and how it again and again morphed over the decades. So to begin with, it becomes uh, a story about Anglo-American terror bombardment. That's the terminology that Goebbels uses. That interestingly enough, also East Germany then takes over and continues to use the Anglo-American terror bombardment. Um, then, of course, you have um, the whole discussion about the air raids built into the reconstruction topic. Somebody brought up the reconstruction thing and building up the cities again, right? So that is where the air war then is built up. So we commemorate the destruction of the air war, war of, of the air raids. Uh, but we connected with our enthusiasm about rebuilding the cities. 
So we can see all through the decades different narratives basically uh, are uh, connected uh, with it. And I think the most problematic aspect of all of this is that in um, the last five years, eight years, there's been a successful adoption of Dresden by both neo-Nazis and also the alternative for Germany. So if there's one geographic center of that new radical right wing in Germany, it's Dresden. Not necessarily in terms of votes only. Yeah, they're stronger there, but it's more symbolic. And they very often relate to the bombing. So it becomes a metaphor for we suffered as well. So they use that history very much. Just to turn the question on America, what is the contemporary perspective from Germany as to what's happening in our country, particularly with the apparent rise of the alternate right, the neo-Nazis? Is there anything, is there any discussion and kind of perspective you can give on what Europeans are saying or seeing in our country? In Do you want to hear what I really think? I can do what I think. Um, I think that people across the political spectrum in Germany um, are deeply uh, disorientated, uh, frustrated, uh, kind of lost, um, and feel that we are at this major threshold because suddenly the most important ally for half a century is gone. It's this feeling of a deep depression of experiencing that the American era is over. Uh, the confidence that yes, there are American weapons and soldiers that protect us, and that was kind of convenient and saved us money, sure, but also this idea that when push came to shove, we could rely on the Americans. There is a society that has had a successful, strong, democratic civil society for 250 years that is a bulwark that we can rely on, is gone. America is unpredictable. America cannot be counted on. America uh, destroys the basis of civil society that we together shared for half a century and that we got from you after 45. And that's a very depressing and frustrating thing because I'm not sure that Germans fully are able to lift that burden and to say, okay, if America falls to the wayside, it needs to be Europe. Europe has its own issues, and the most powerful player in Europe is Germany, and that's a lot to shoulder. And after everything that I've talked to you about for how many hours now, there's just a hesitation to say, is that really our role? Can we do that? To a certain degree, we need at least to be part of a broader group of countries that are willing to say there are certain values in international politics and also certain democratic values that we stand by also when they are betrayed in, in Washington. Right. So that's the big challenge that I would say.